Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for the time that you have given us so far. The time of sweet communion over the table and the time of communion with you in singing and in worship. Indeed, Lord Jesus, your name is sweet. It's very sweet. As we sang that, I thought back through the years and all the graces that you poured upon my life. And then I thought of all the graces you have poured upon all of our lives represented here in this room. Lord, you are so sweet to our taste. You are life for us and we love you. And we pray that you would come and feed us now, Lord. I have words to say and you have called me to say them. But you're the true teacher of the church. You're the Lord of the church. You're the guide, the head of the church. You are everything in the church. And so we give this time to you. We give ourselves to you. We pray that we would humble our hearts before you and be teachable before you, Father. And as the word of God goes out now, as as true as I can be to the word of God, I pray that it would be like seeds that are planted in our hearts planted in our minds, planted in our lives that would sprout and grow and bear 30 and 60 and 100 fold fruit for the glory of your name. The word of God is powerful. It is the power of God for salvation to the one who believes. So cause us to believe, I pray this morning. Cause us to be awake to the spirit, Lord. We are so prone to fall asleep to spiritual things. And I pray now that you would wake us up by the Holy Spirit and cause us to receive your word with joy and with gladness. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight now, O Lord, our God. Amen. At its heart, Ephesians 2.11 through 3.13, which is one unit of Scripture, is a... Um, an explanation, a brief one, of how God worked salvation out for the nations of the world. It's really not all that different from Romans 9, 10, and 11, but Romans 9 through 11 is a little bit longer and more detailed. And a few weeks ago, I said to you that I see in these verses six specific steps or aspects of how God worked this salvation out. Two of them we've already talked about, and the third of them, Lord willing, we will talk about today. So the first aspect is this. In light of an utterly sinful humanity that were children of wrath, the Bible says, God chose for himself one people out of all the peoples of the earth, and he purified that people and prepared that people and gave that people the law and the covenants and the promises. That was step one. He chose the Jews for himself out of all the peoples of the earth. And as I said that week, it wasn't because of anything in them that commended them to Him. It's that God, out of a free and gracious choice, chose chose them to be His people and to do His bidding. Step number two is this. When the time was full and the work of preparation and purification was complete, God sent Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, into the world into the Jewish culture to live a perfectly righteous life and then to make atonement for us who were not righteous through His death and burial and resurrection. And as we talked about last week, in doing that, Jesus Christ shattered the dividing wall that stood between Jews on one side and Gentiles on the other. And now Jews and Gentiles are reconciled to each other in Jesus and both reconciled to God in Jesus 
one body on the cross. So now Jews are saved through Christ and Gentiles are saved through Christ. The two have been made one and reconciled to God. Step three is this, and this is what we will talk about today. After the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, God revealed some of the details of his glorious plan to the apostles and the prophets and caused them to write it down. He caused them to write it. God caused the apostles and the prophets to fix the scope of the gospel and the meaning of the gospel in writing, and that writing we now call the New Testament. And the question I have for this morning is, why? Why did God do that? Why did God fix the beauty of the gospel in writing? Why did he give us the New Testament would be another way to ask the question. And there are many, many answers to that question that are important. And in fact, I'm working on a course that hopefully I'll be able to have completed by the spring that will answer that kind of a question in detail. But for this morning, I want to just give you three reasons. And I'm going to summarize them briefly, and then I'm going to actually talk about a couple other things first, and then we'll come back to these three things. Number one, God revealed the glorious truths of the gospel in order to reveal the glorious truths of the gospel. God wanted to reveal true beauty before us that we might see it and love it, and take our joy from it, and live for it, and even if we must, die for it. God desired in Revelation to inflame the affections of His people for things that are worth being inflamed over. Isn't this world excited about a million things that aren't worth being excited over? They really are. We really are. And God wanted to give us something that was worth being excited over, worth being inflamed over, worth even suffering over, worth taking our joy in. That's the first reason why I think God revealed the truths of the gospel. It was for His glory in our joy. Number two, God revealed the glorious truths of the gospel in order to provide an objective witness against those who would not believe so that on the day of judgment, they would be absolutely without excuse. So God revealed the Bible in order to give lost people, sinners like us, every possible chance to repent. And then for those who will not repent, for those who do not repent, on the day of judgment, the Bible will stand against us as an objective testimony to the mercy and the grace of God. And then finally, number three, God revealed the glorious truths of the gospel in order to anchor the church in truth and in order to protect us from error that abounds all around us. So those are the three things. I'll come back to those in a minute. But for now, I want to show you first where I see this in Ephesians 2 and 3, how I get to the topic of the New Testament and the writings that are there. And then I want to say a few words about how God revealed these things, and then we'll return to these Three things that I've just summarized. So please look with me, if you will, at Ephesians 2.19. I'm going to read two verses here, and then we'll go to verse or to chapter 3. Paul writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now let's stop there. I think that what verse 20 means is that the church is built on the teachings of the apostles and the prophets and on the person of Jesus Christ. This church, every church, the universal church is built, it rests on the teachings of the apostles and the prophets and on the person of Jesus Christ. 
Now look with me at chapter 3 and I'll show you where I get that. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. So you see there that something was made known to Paul. He didn't come up with this on his own. It was made known to him by revelation. In other words, his eyes were opened and he saw things that he had not seen before and then he wrote it down. He wrote it down. And then verse 4 says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles, plural, and prophets by the Spirit. So it wasn't just Paul. There were other apostles and prophets who received revelation and they wrote it down. That's the key. And then verse 6 This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, and of course the implication is with the Jews, members of the same body with the Jews, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus with the Jews through the gospel. So that's how I get to the discussion of the New Testament. In these verses, God shows, or we learn, that God revealed the mystery of how he was working salvation out for the nations to the apostles, and they wrote it down. And that writing became known as the New Testament. I think that that's what it means to say that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It's not that we're built on them as people or as personalities. We do not stand on the personality of the Apostle Peter or the Apostle Paul or whoever, but we do very much stand on their teachings. And their teachings are enshrined, preserved for us, if you will, in the New Testament. Now, of course, the cornerstone of their teaching is Jesus Christ, right? Not just teaching about him, but Jesus Christ himself. It's just as I said last week. Jesus Christ does not bring us life as if from outside of himself. Jesus Christ is our life. He does not bring us hope as if from outside of himself. He is our hope. So to be a Christian is to dive headlong into the ocean of Jesus Christ and to be immersed in Him, to be saturated with Him, to be made one with Him. Jesus Christ Himself, the text says, is the cornerstone of the church. Not just teachings about Him, even though that's very important, but it's Jesus Christ Himself. And so I say that the church is founded on the, the teaching of the apostles and prophets and on the person of Jesus Christ, and those teachings are fixed in the New Testament. Okay, that's how I get to the discussion of the New Testament. Now I want to talk with you just for a few minutes about the means by which God revealed these things to the apostles and prophets. Please look with me at chapter 3, verse 4. When you read this, You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. And then here's the key, by the Spirit. That's the key phrase. That's the means by which God did what he did, by the Spirit. God revealed the content of the New Testament to human beings by means of the Holy Spirit, who is God. God used human beings to write down the Bible. I I will grant you that. Every conservative, Bible-believing Christian will grant you that. Men wrote the Bible down. But those men are not responsible for the scope and the shape and the content of the Bible. God is. 
It says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that the Bible is breathed out by God. And he did that by breathing his will into the hearts of men. And then they wrote it down. Please turn with me, if you will, to 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll spend a few minutes here and then we'll go back to Ephesians. 2 Peter chapter 1, we'll start at verse 16 and go to verse 21. Here's what Peter wrote. He said, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we didn't make this stuff up. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from the Father, the voice and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Now let me stop there for a second. Because what Peter just said there in verse 19 truly amazes me. It really blows my mind. Think through this with me for a second. Peter, along with James and John and Jesus, had hiked up to the top of a very tall mountain. And when they were at the top of that mountain, the body of Jesus Christ was literally transformed before their eyes. They saw this with their eyes. It was transfigured, the Gospel says. The Gospels say. And Jesus Christ, in His physical body, shone with the glory of God as bright as the sun. And they saw it with their own eyes. And there standing on one side of Him was Moses. And standing on the other side of Him was Elijah, also glowing with the glory of God. And they heard an audible voice from God Himself say, This is My beloved Son. With Him I am well pleased. And Peter saw it with his eyes, and he heard it with his ears. You talk about a powerful experience with God, that's a powerful experience. And not only on that day... But Peter spent three years walking with Jesus Christ. And he watched Jesus with his own eyes work miracles. He watched Him take a little bit of bread and a couple of fish and feed thousands of people. He saw it. He watched Jesus heal sick people. He watched Jesus cast demons out of people. He was there when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He was one of the first couple of disciples who went and saw the empty tomb. He saw it with his own eyes. And he saw the risen Lord Jesus with his own eyes. Peter was there on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the church in great power and enabled just everyday normal people to speak in languages they had never known or never heard and allowed them to preach the Gospel with great boldness. I mean, can you imagine? Peter preached his very first sermon and 3,000 men were saved. And then just a few days later, he preaches again and 5,000 more people are saved. He was an eyewitness to enormous power that was being poured out on into the world through the church. One time, Peter was put in prison for preaching. And you probably remember the story. He was shackled to a wall. His, his arm, his, his, I was going to say ankles, these are not ankles, his wrists were shackled, and he was chained to a wall, and he was there behind iron bars, 
And Peter saw with his own eyes an angel of God come into the prison, open the door, loosen his shackles, and he walked out of a high-security prison like no one was even there. He saw it with his own eyes. Peter was there at the house of Cornelius. When God began to pour out the Gospel and the Holy Spirit, not just on the Jews, but on the other nations in the world, the whole plan was for God to make salvation available for the whole world through Jesus Christ, through the Jewish people. But they didn't know it at that time. And Peter was there. He was an eyewitness to the very beginnings of the movement of the Gospel from the Jewish people into the nations of the world. He saw it with his own eyes. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that no one that has ever lived has had as many powerful and direct experiences with Jesus Christ as the Apostle Peter. Maybe if we included the Old Testament, Moses might might tie him. But no one beats Peter. He had more powerful experiences with God than anyone who's ever lived. And yet, what did he say in verse 19? This is what blows my mind. Look at verse 19. He said, And yet... We have something more sure. We have something more sure. He had just talked about seeing Jesus Christ transfigured and hearing the literal, audible voice of God Almighty speak over him. And then he said, we have something that's more sure. Do you know what that means? That means that the great Apostle Peter's experiences are not as sure and glorious and powerful as the Bible that you're holding in your hands right now. It means that the church is not mainly built on the foundation of experience with God, but it's mainly built on the foundation of truth revealed by God and preserved by God. Experience matters. If we didn't have real experiences with God, all this would pretty much be a joke, right? I have had experiences with Jesus, but the, but the foundation of the Word of God is much more sure, and that's the foundation on which the church is built. This means that the most powerful and direct experiences of God that you can have are less glorious and less sure than the Word of God that you hold in your hands. That book is a sure foundation. And every single experience of God that we have, therefore, must submit itself to this book. That's what it means. And that blows my mind. Now, why is it that the Bible is more sure than experience? Well, look with me at verse 20, and we'll see how Peter concludes this. Knowing this, first of all, this is of first importance, you must get this, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The reason that the Bible is more sure than experience is because it's the written record of what God wanted to cement and fix in history through the writing of the apostles. And since it's divine communication, it is more sure than human experience. Every book of the Bible and every word of the Bible was given to us by God through the Holy Spirit. It's a divine Book. It is not a human book. And that's why it's more sure than even the great Apostle Peter's experiences. 2 Timothy 3.16, as I said earlier, says that the Bible is breathed out by God. 
the book you're holding in your hands was breathed out by God. It's not the ideas of men. And that's why it's a sure foundation for this church, for all churches, even more sure than personal experience. If you ever hear a preacher basing uh, his um, sense of authority in what he's preaching for truth or for theology in experience, I would say to you, beware. If someone stands up and tells you even powerful experiences they've had with God and then tries to root theology and root his teaching in that, beware. I'd be humble about it because it might not be that the person is a false teacher. Maybe that they just haven't thought very well between about the relationship between experience with God and revealed truth by God. And so maybe if you can, you could even point them to Second Peter 1 and help them to think about it. But if you see, and there are lots of people out there doing this today, people grounding their teaching and experience, beware, beware. Be humble, but beware. And I include myself in that as well. If I ever slip into grounding what I teach on experience, I invite you to point it out to me because I don't want to do that. We have something that's much more sure than even the most powerful experiences with God, and that is the Word of God given to us by revelation. So now, I want to return to the question I asked earlier this morning. Why did God choose to give us the Bible, especially the New Testament? Why did He choose to fix the meaning of the Gospel and of Jesus Christ in the New Testament? And as I said earlier, there are many reasons for that, but I'm going to give you three of them. First of all, God revealed the glorious truths of the Gospel in order to reveal the glorious truths of the Gospel. As I said, He wants to inflame our hearts with things that are worth being inflamed over. We were praying before the service this morning. My prayer was, I just imagined myself sitting here as a preacher and all of you were like a fire pit with the coals burning and I just want to blow on them and blow on them and blow on them with things that are worth being inflamed over. And I pray that God will do that for you this morning. We are so distracted with so many things in the world, but God has revealed truly glorious things to us that we might not be distracted, but that we might give ourselves to things that are truly worthwhile and truly glorious. And part of what I want us to see this morning is that Jesus Christ bought for us on the cross the ability to access that truth, to access that glory, to apprehend it, to love it, to take joy in it, to live for it, to die for it. He bought that for us on the cross. So if you'll turn with me back to Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll look at verse 7. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Paul wrote this there. He said, In Him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. And then here's the key. Which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. God in Christ lavished upon us wisdom and insight, making known to us the mysteries of the Gospel so that we would not just know that we were saved, but He wants us to know something about why and how we were saved. He bought that for us on the cross. It's part of the Gospel. And He so much wants us to learn to behold and prize true glory and true beauty. And that beauty is hidden for us in the treasure chest of this book. 
All that beauty is hidden for us right here. And oh, that we would open this treasure chest and glut ourselves on it every single day of our lives. That we would take advantage of what Jesus Christ bought for us on the cross every day of our lives. You know, not to do so, I was thinking about this yesterday. It's like if we had a literal treasure chest and we're hungry people, and instead of opening up the treasure chest and taking the resources and buying food, we just leave the treasure chest behind and go out into the streets and beg for food. When we had all the resources we could ever want right there in our grasp, that's what this book is like for us. It's a treasure chest. And oh, that we would glut ourselves on it every single day of our lives. That we would learn to take our glory in things that are truly, truly glorious. And if we'll do that, all the rest of the things in our lives will take their proper place. Even things that are weighing us down, even things that are sapping us of energy. This book is meant to put all things in proper perspective. Earlier this week, I was, um, I was struggling to get something off my mind in the morning. I had dealt with an issue, and, and the issue was dealt with, and it was behind me. But I woke up in the morning, and just emotionally, I just couldn't detach from it. You know what I mean? So whatever the issue was, all the issues are settled, but emotionally I just can't let it go. So I take up my journal and I begin to journal and I'm, and I'm asking God to help me. And then I turn to the Word and it just so happened that that day I was to read the second half of the book of Revelation. And so I turn to about chapter 11 or 12 in there somewhere, I don't remember exactly. And I began to read and for the first couple of chapters I just continued to struggle with letting this thing go. But at some point the Lord helped me and I just got so lost in the glory of what I was reading in those chapters that I literally forgot completely about what I was thinking about. And I was now thinking about the glory of the sovereignty of God over all things and thinking about the power of Jesus Christ. That was the morning that I read Revelation 19 and that picture of Jesus on a white horse ruling the nations called the Word of God and the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and God just made it so real to me, you guys. Just just as real as you're sitting here before me this morning. It was just all so real and what I was thinking about just disappeared for a time. And then later on that day, even when I remembered it again, it was just all different for me. It was now in a different perspective because I saw it in the light of who God is. And that's what the Bible will do for us. The Bible will put all of the difficulties of our lives into perspective. Now please listen to me. I know that some of you are dealing with very difficult things in your lives right now. I know that you are. I know that some of you are dealing with painful things, with things that have been going on a very, very long time, with things that keep you up at night and that sometimes sap your joy. But I want you to hear me say it again. God graciously provided the New Testament for you to put all that stuff into perspective. Even difficult things that cause suffering in your life, the Bible was meant to put it all in its proper place and to to make it a fountain of joy rather than a drainer of joy. So please, I plead with you, be found often in that book. Read it all the time. Read it every day. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Teach it to your spouse. Teach it to your children. Learn to love this book. And learn to love the God of this book. God has treasures for you in it that are meant for your joy. So please, be found often in that book and ask Him. I would just ask Him if I was you. Lord, I believe what Ephesians says. I believe what our pastor said this morning. You bought for me on the cross the ability to have insight into the Bible. Please make that real for me. Just when you sit down to read it, just say, God, make it real for me. 
And then if you'll be patient with Him and wait on the Lord, He'll do it. In His time and in His way, He'll open up your eyes and you'll see true beauty and it will give joy to your soul. So that's the first reason the Lord gave us the New Testament was to reveal glorious truth to us that is worth giving our lives to. The second reason, as I said, is this. God revealed the glorious truths of the Gospel in order to provide an objective witness against those who would not believe so that they would be without excuse on the day of judgment. In Romans chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, you just listen to this. You probably remember that Paul even talked about how the created order, how creation will provide an objective witness against everyone who does not believe. Here's what Paul said. He said, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How did God do that? For His invisible attributes, namely two things, His eternal power and His divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So, Bible scholars, theologians, talk about creation and the created order as general revelation of God. And what that means is that in creation, God has revealed Himself in a general way. He has shown His power, and He has shown that He is God. And that's why the Bible says in the Psalms, that only the fool says there is no God. It's a real fool who looks at this world and says there is no God. God has made it abundantly clear, hasn't He, in creation that He exists. Now I'll tell you, I'm really tempted to stop right here and give about an hour lecture on the foolishness of Darwinism, and the foolishness of evolutionary thought. It is just so foolish. How could you even seriously think about how an eyeball works? Or how an ear works. So the other day I was looking at the squirrel just thinking, God did that. How, that couldn't have just come to be. God must have done that. Or just to look at a tree or to look at the stars. It takes a real fool to look at these things and say there is no God. That's what the Bible says. So God has revealed Himself in creation so much so that He said, when you stand before me and answer for your life, you will be without excuse. You'll be absolutely without excuse. The Bible is what theologians call specific revelation. In creation, God just generally revealed Himself, but in the Bible, He gives specific and detailed information about Himself, about His character, His attributes, His actions in the world, His will, His plans, all of that. And because God provided that revelation for us, we will especially be without excuse. If a culture that has never had the Bible in its own language is without excuse... How much more a culture like ours? Where we have, I don't know how many translations there are out there, but there are tens and tens and tens of translations available to us in English. We have the Bible on MP3. We have it on CD. We have it on radio. We have it on television. We have it on cassette tapes. For those of you who remember what cassette tapes are. Uh, we have it in print media. We have it everywhere. We have it on our little uh, Palm Pilots. We've got the Bible everywhere. Believe me, this culture will not have an excuse when we stand before God. When we stand before the Lord, the Bible will provide for us a way, uh, it will cut off for us a way of escape and a way of making excuses before the Lord. And I'll tell you, even myself, when the Lord calls me to account for my life, I will testify against myself in regard to my sin. 
I will say to the Lord, if He gives me that chance, that, Lord, I am completely responsible for my own sin because I knew about Your book. And I read Your book every single day of my life and I meditated on Your book and I memorized Your book and I taught Your book to other people. I knew it and so I'm without excuse, God. I'm totally without excuse. And then I will plead the blood of Jesus Christ over my life and and He will forgive me in Christ. But point being, just like me, all of us will be totally without excuse because God in His grace gave us the Bible to provide a way for us to be saved. And if we would not be saved, it would become a witness against us. So woe to us. Woe to us. If we do not take advantage of that book, if we do not study it and seek to live it out by grace and seek to love it and to love the God of that book, on the day of judgment, not one person will be able to say, I didn't know what you expected from me. It won't fly because God will say, I gave you my book. I fixed it in writing and you ignored it. So let's not go there. Number three, third reason why God gave us the Bible. And I'll close with this. God revealed the glorious truths of the gospel in order to anchor the church in truth and to project to protect the church from error. And just think about it with me, Kevin, wherever you are, you prayed about this even this morning in our prayer meeting. If we did not have the New Testament, how would we be able to discern between true teaching and false teaching? How would you know? If we did not have that book, how would you know truth from error? And I think the obvious answer to that question is, you wouldn't. There would be no way for you to discern true teaching from false teaching. The answer is that each of us as individuals, and then collectively, together as a church, we would just be subject to any wind and wave of teaching that came along. And whoever was the most strong and most powerful teacher at the time, that's the way we would go. We would be just like a a ship out in the ocean that's blowing about. Even in the first century, this was the case in the church. You probably remember from your own reading that no sooner had Paul and the other apostles preached the gospel around the world and created churches in cities all around the world that other teachers came in behind them and started teaching false things. Did you know that most of the letters in the New Testament, including the gospels, were written in response to false teachers? Or at least they were written in response to questions that arose because of other kinds of teachings. And as I said, even the Gospels, there was, as there is in our day, there was in that day much argumentation over exactly who Jesus was and exactly what His life meant. And so they fixed the meaning of the life of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So please do not underestimate the importance of the book that you're holding in your hands. That book is an anchor for your soul. And that book is an anchor for the life of the church. And as I said, without it, we'd just be floating around like a ship without an anchor. Last week I spoke to you about a radio preacher that can be heard in this area, and I spoke against him. And after church, someone had told me that they had always known something was not quite right with this guy's teaching, but they didn't know what. So here's an example of a subtle false teacher. Some things he's saying are true. And then... The heart of his teaching is false. He actually teaches that there are two ways to be saved. One way for the Jews through the law and a completely other way for Gentiles through Jesus Christ. That's heresy. When you say there's a way to be saved that's not Jesus, that's heresy. But he's very subtle. He's very subtle. There are other teachers who are not so subtle and they're coming against the church full steam and teaching out and out heretical things. And my question to you is how will you know? 
How will you stay grounded? How will your, you keep yourself from going astray? I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that in our day, there is more false teaching abounding than there's ever been in history. And the reason I say that is because 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, it's available on the internet, through television, through radio, through print media that's never been as quickly available before. I mean, some guy can write a book on the other side of the planet and I can go on Amazon.com and have it to my house in three days. It's widely available to us. False teaching is pouring at the church. And again, I ask you, how will you ground your soul? How will you keep yourself from going astray? And I hope that you haven't told yourself that you can't go astray, because you can, and I can too. And so how will we anchor our souls? How will we anchor this church? Well, I'll tell you how. It's in this book. It's reading this book and loving this book and staying close to this book and following this book on its own terms and memorizing this book and meditating on this book. It will be an anchor for your souls. Do you know how they teach bankers to find counterfeit um, bills? What do they do? Does anybody know? That's right. They get them to know the real thing so well that as soon as they touch a fake thing, they know it. That's how you ground yourself in truth. Know this book. You've got to bury yourselves in this book. And the more you know it, you just begin to smell. You know, something is not right about this guy. Something is not right about this teaching. I don't know what it is, but something's wrong. And as you grow, you'll be able more and more to articulate what's actually wrong. So the way to ground yourself is to know that book. And I'll promise you something. As long as Kevin Fetter and I are the pastors of this church, we will ground our teaching in that book. We will lead this church according to that book. We will choose leaders, train leaders, employ leaders who love that book. We will open ourselves up to accountability on the basis of that book, both now and in eternity. You know, one day, Kevin and I will stand before Jesus Christ and answer for this church on the basis of that book. And I just want to promise you, that book, by the grace of God, will be the anchor for this church. And it will keep us from going astray by His grace. I promise you that. God gave us this book to reveal glorious truth to us and to anchor our souls in that truth and to protect us from error. So I end with a plea again. Know that book. Read that book. Love it. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Love it. Teach it. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we are so grateful to You that You revealed the truths of the Gospel in this book and gave it to us as an anchor and a foundation for our souls, and as an anchor and a foundation for the church. Thank You, God, for caring for us to that extent. Thank You. And now I pray, Lord, that You would give us hearts for Your book, and give us hearts for You. Father, to love You is to love what You have revealed. To love You is to love what You have said in the Bible. To love You is to seek by grace to obey what You have said. So help us, I pray. Lord, we admit that we are so easily distracted by thousands of other things, but we ask You by grace to anchor our souls in Your Word. God, when we leave church today, I pray that we'd have more passion to read that book than we would to watch television or to engage in some other kind of activity or to do whatever it is that we plan to do. Give us a passion for the book, I pray. Make effective for the people of this church what You bought for us on the cross through Jesus Christ. Lord, we love You. 
for what you have done. And again, we pray that you would make it effective for us and that you would be glorified in that endeavor. In the great and gracious and glorious name of Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Will you please stand with me? I'm going to read over you as a benediction this morning. Jude one twenty four through 25 because this is a real comfort to our souls that even in the face of such false teaching, the Lord is able to and will make us stand. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen.